You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue in our time of worship, you'll turn to John 16. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 24 this morning, or 16 to 24. Thank you, Josh, for stepping in as our pinch hitter and orchestra and choir. It's already been a great day as we remember through baptism that the Lord's not done. He is still in the saving business. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And that is the hope of the world. Nothing else. There's no politic. There's no party. That's the hope of the world. It is the fact that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And may we remember that today as we come to this time uh, in John 16. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the realities we just sang about. No fear in death. Our hope is a living hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who was raised from the grave. Indeed, we say, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In your great mercy, you have given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. May we behold that today, that reality in the person of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Tuesday, we, we celebrate what history now tells us is, was the beginning of the, Re- the Reformation, the 506th anniversary, in fact, of the beginning of the Reformation when Martin Luther posted those 95 theses, complaints, if you will, on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. The Reformation was centered around five affirmations, what we know as five solas, that salvation is by grace alone. We, we bring no merit to the table. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Salvation is to the glory of God alone. And we know all of these realities through Scripture alone. And the Reformers were willing to die for those truths. In fact, many of them did. One of the most inspiring stories to me from that time comes from the Scottish reformer, John Knox's son-in-law. His name was John Welch. And John Knox's daughter named Rachel, who was married to John Welch. John Welch was a preacher, just like his father-in-law. And he preached the doctrines that we just spoke about, the five solas, Salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But it got him in trouble. Got him in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church. It got him in trouble uh, with the king. And he was put in jail. And he was waiting on death, the death penalty. Well, his wife, Rachel, John Knox's daughter, goes and gets a hearing before the king. And here's what the king said. If If your husband will renounce what he's saying and submit to the Roman Catholic Church and to the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church, I will release him. And Rachel, John Knox's daughter, and John Welsh's 
wife famously pulled out his, her apron and said, Majesty, I would rather have his head here. She would rather her husband be beheaded than for him to renounce the faith and submit to a false gospel. Now we know from John 15 verses 18 to 25, Jesus has warned the disciples that the world will hate followers of Christ. You will experience hatred. You will experience persecution in the world. But maybe many of you are like me. You've never experienced anything that John Welch or his wife Rachel experienced. You know nothing about having your life endangered for the gospel. Maybe some of you have. Some of you that have served in closed countries. But most of us know nothing about that. This idea that your death would be considered a victory for a false religion, like many are experiencing even today. Indeed, in John 16, verse 2, Jesus had predicted that, had prophesied that. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you think he is offering service to God. He's speaking this to the disciples. And for the remainder of their lives, there would be very few, if any, times when these disciples, these 11 disciples, remember Judas has already walked out, he has betrayed Jesus. There would be few, if any, times if any of these disciples ever felt physically safe again. And we know from history that 10 of these 11 disciples were martyred because they would not renounce Christ. They must have been convinced of something, you think? Indeed, they were. Men that are raised from the grave tend to be believable. And so these men were willing to die for the sake of Christ. And the 11th John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Yet in spite of the danger, in spite of the hatred, in spite of the persecution, Acts 17.6 tells us these men literally turned the world upside down. Indeed, they did it with joy. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, you see these words, these final words that Jesus has given the disciples before he goes to the cross, before he's arrested. You see them coming true. And he promises them, there, there's coming a time shortly where you will be beaten, you will be arrested, you will be persecuted and scorned. But the disciples respond to all of that in a way that is counterintuitive to us all. Acts 5 verse 41 tells us they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now given Jesus' warning here, given his words, it would seem that all of us in here, all the Christians in here would have seen and experienced more outright hatred and persecution and danger than most of us really have. And I say that because what we've experienced in the Western church, the American church, is an outlier to history. 
It's an outlier to the New Testament. It, it, it is, it's an anomaly, this notion of religious freedom, religious liberty. But do you realize the Scripture doesn't promise that for us? We can pray for it. First Timothy 2 says that we're to pray for kings and, and those who are in high positions so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. But we're not promised that. We're, we're promised that will be hated by the world. And so we need to ask the question, considering all that the struggles and the danger and the martyrdom that these disciples would experience. And given the reality that that has been the norm for many in church history. And given this reality, there, you know there are 360 million Christians in the world today that are considered persecuted. There are 360 million persecuted Christians. The question we need to ask, how do these Christians persevere in the midst of danger and struggle and persecution? The answer is it was for the joy set before them. For the joy set before them. And our text gives us some really important truths about that joy today. The first thing we see and this is the language from the text itself, fullness of enduring joy through transformed sorrow. Fullness of enduring joy through transformed sorrow. The scripture is teaching us here, Jesus is teaching us something here about this joy. Look with me in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. That, that, that phrase, a little while, you're going to see it seven times in our passage. It's a very important uh, a phrase. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while. I think they're probably embarrassed that they don't understand what he's saying. They should understand, but they don't. And you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. Going to the Father has been the theme since chapter 13, verse 1, in the upper room discourse. They're now outside the upper room. They have left the upper room. But it's the same discourse. What does it mean, going to the Father? Well, it means that... Jesus Christ is going to be arrested in a very short time. He's going to go through these various trials. He's going to be shamed. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured and flogged. And then he is going to be hung on a Roman cross, the most shameful and painful death known to man. And he is going to bear the wrath of God for sinners on the cross. And then he's going to be buried and then he's going to be raised on the third day. And then he will ascend to the Father. Well, he will sit at the right hand of the Father and rule and reign by his gospel and spirit. That's what he means when he says going to the Father. But clearly this was a puzzle to the disciples. It shouldn't have been. But we would have been the same way. They continue to show they have no concept of a Messiah who would win victory through death, even though the Old Testament prophesied it. 
They did not have eyes to see. It would require his resurrection in order for them to understand what Jesus is meaning here. There was a prominent British economist who one year in December was asked about his prediction of the economic forecast, the impact that Christmas season would have on the economy. And his answer was greater than he knew. His answer to that question was far greater than anything he knew he was saying. Here's what he said. The significance of Christmas will not become clear until Easter. Do you see what he's saying? What he meant to say was, we really don't know and won't know the, the economic impact of Christmas season for a few months around Christmas or Easter season. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You're not fully going to understand what I'm saying to you until I am raised from the grave. Indeed, the reason the disciples are perplexed is they are trying to understand all that Jesus is saying without the needed perspective of his resurrection. Incidentally, it is that very resurrection and the gift of the Spirit that now gives us lenses to interpret the entire Bible. And the disciples need that resurrection as well. Well, notice in verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that. They wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I mean by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you. 25 times he says that, and when he says it, 25 times in the Gospel of John, Truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, the original would have been amen, amen. We get the word amen. Um, we, send, we tend to say amen when said, someone says something profound. Jesus says it before he says something profound. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It almost seems like he's reading Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping comes in the night, but joy comes in the, the morning. Really, the theme here is joy in a little while. It's the recurring theme for the rest of this chapter. And so, contextually, the disciples are going to experience sorrow immediately after he's arrested. And they're going to experience sorrow immediately uh, after he is hung on a cross. That's the, the first kind of sorrow that they're going to experience. It's going to go beyond that, but this is the immediate context. But we can certainly apply that to ourselves as well. In this broken world, believers will experience sorrow. We will experience grief as well. But the key phrase, and I love this, for a little while. Seven times for a little while. 
We saw it, first of all, in verse 16, and we see it seven times in verses 16 to 19. You think that's important? Yes. Uh, the word here is, has got a microphone speaking to those of us who may be struggling with grief right now in a little while. Well, that phrase, in a little while, is often used in Scripture to describe an interval of struggle that we are called to endure. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 4.17 as momentary affliction. Momentary affliction. And for the disciples, verse 20 tells us, they would weep and lament while the world will rejoice. Now, that certainly applies to us through church history. We see the world rejoicing without regard for God and His gospel. We see that. And many Christians today are weeping and lamenting because of righteousness' sake. But it's for a little while. But this original context is referring to the cross, though it can be applied to all of us. Now, there are many reasons that they would weep and lament. For one, we're going to see next week that they're actually going to become cowards for a moment and turn their back on Jesus when it gets hot in the kitchen. Uh, that's going to be one of the reasons they weep and lament. Sometimes our weeping and lamenting is because of our own sin. But also understand, they will weep and lament because they're going to see that the only truly good man in the history of the world is going to be pummeled. He is going to be tortured. He's going to be shamed. He is going to be crucified on a cross. And they're going to know all the while he never deserved that. He never deserved that. We never heard him say one sinful thing about anybody. We only saw him love his enemies perfectly. He was righteousness in the flesh. That's why they will lament. They will also lament because they will come to learn in time that it was their sin that got him crucified. And it was our sin that got him crucified. He took the cross because of our sin. Third reason that they will lament and weep is because if you identify with Jesus in a world opposed, it's going to be painful. Okay? And so he's promising them this for a a little while, only a little while. Still, let's be honest, it generally doesn't seem like a little while when you're going through it. Ask Mike Cannon. It doesn't seem that way. Back when I was in college, um, one of the hardest workouts we had was... 16 110-yard sprints, and then 16 55s, and then you do box jumps after that. And you didn't do it in the shade, all right? You did it in the heat of the day in July, all right? And if I remember correctly, I texted one of my coaches and asked him about the times last night. He never answered my text, so if you're watching this, you didn't answer my text. If I remember correctly, our running time for those 110s was 17 seconds. Now, you run two or three of those, you go, wow, this, this ain't bad at all. But you only had 30-second rest between them. 
the heat is stifling. The heat, the, the uh, turf is so hot that your feet are actually burning. You can see steam coming off the car. There's no oxygen out there. The only proof of oxygen is the, the screens of the coach. <laughs> and then you run those 16 110s and you have nothing left. But get this. I calculated this. If you run 16 110s in 17 seconds, that's only 272 seconds of running. But it sure felt like more than that when you're suffering. But it was only for a little while. But then we would often go into the player lounge and we'd watch Andy of Mayberry. Any godly person does that after they've gone through something. And we would watch a couple of episodes of Andy Griffith in the air conditioning and an hour seemed like a snap of the finger, right? Because it was easy. There was nothing hard about it. But after those sprints, there was more elation than after watching a couple of episodes of Andy Griffith in the air conditioning. Now, that's a faint analogy because that, that elation is temporal. But you get the point. Jesus is promising that through the suffering, through the tears, joy comes in the morning. But he doesn't say that the disciples would grieve and then experience joy. No. He is saying your sorrow for my sake will be transformed into joy. Turned, it will be turned into joy. In other words, the principle is clear here. God brings joy not by substitution but by transformation. We see this even in the book of Esther. You know, Esther, uh, they're celebrating the Jewish festival of Purim which was a time to celebrate God delivering the people of God from this evil man named Haman who wanted to exterminate them. And he delivered them through the hands of a man named Mordecai and, and Esther. And, and it says that the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, this is what they're celebrating, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. It's transformed. The pain and the suffering will be transformed into gladness, to joy, to a holiday. And Jesus himself will be the paradigm for this. What Hebrews 12 tells us, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. And unless we miss it, he gives us a very helpful analogy one that mothers probably understand better than anyone else. Verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now he would see them after his resurrection and again he would see them in glory, but he would see them 
when he returns. That's, that's a promise to every believer. But in this particular context, he's speaking about after his death and his resurrection. Now, why does Jesus use childbirth um, as a comparison? Well, we know that life comes through the pain of childbirth. Every parent knows that, and in particular, the mothers know that. And likewise, new life comes through the cross and the resulting resurrection. And so the joy that a baby, a child brings doesn't merely follow the labor pain. It is through the labor pain that the joy of this baby comes. I remember Heather had four C-sections and she was the one in pain, but I was the one who was uptight. She sat there with a smile as she was going through all, I was just thinking, if men were the ones that had babies, this, we would be extinct, the population would be extinct. Because <laughs> we, we think childbirth, that, that's kind of like a man having a cold, all right? We complain that much. But the reason she could smile was because the source of her pain was also the source of her joy. Jesus is going to the cross, and the cross is going to be a source of pain, yes, for Jesus, but it's going to be a source of pain for every believer. Here's why. The cross signals that sinners must be judged. The cross signals that our sin will be judged. And that salvation is found only through Jesus. Why is Jesus the only way to salvation? He's the only one who's ever been hung on a cross, satisfied God's wrath on sin, and then was raised bodily from the grave to ever live for all eternity. That's why he's the only way. But a world opposed hates that message. A world that does not understand their sin, a world that does not understand what their sin deserves hates that message. And therefore, those who identify with Jesus will suffer, not like Jesus, but they will suffer with Jesus because of their identification with his cross. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That same cross that brings suffering will bring about salvation joy through the resurrection. As the old hymn, O love that will not let me go, says, there is a joy that seeketh me through pain. I love that. Again, I can remember back in my football days, and there were exceptions to this rule for sure, but generally speaking, football players enjoy the first day of school more than the average student. Is it because we're better students than the average? No, we're not. But what the first day of school represented for a football player was that two days were over. August practice was now over. And now the practices would be transformed into game week practices, which were a whole lot easier than August practices and even before that spring practices. 
The average student who had not been through that didn't see it that way. And so, first day of school was much more uh, of a struggle for the, for the regular student. And so, the, the football player would experience not a, a joy that Jesus is speaking here, but, but a kind of a, an elation, a faux joy. But it was a faux joy that wouldn't last. But it was kind of a, you know, some kind of parody of this true joy. This week, I watched an interview from, uh, that was given uh, with the University of Connecticut basketball coach. Uh, his name is Dan Hurley, Bobby Hurley's brother, and they won the national championship back in April. And he said something interesting. He said, the euphoria of winning is incredible, man. Now, that word euphoria, I think, is the best way to describe the unbeliever's understanding of joy. It's not true joy. It's euphoria. And, and this euphoria is dependent on good circumstances, okay? In other words, an unbeliever cannot experience true joy because the source of joy is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the best way you can describe it is euphoria. And we all know euphoria comes and goes because our circumstances are up and down. We all have reserved seats on a roller coaster, don't we? But he says, the euphoria of winning is incredible. That's like a high you'll only get by winning it again. He's acknowledging the only way I can get that experience and feeling is to win it again. That's why you become even more desperate to win it again. That's enslavement. If that's what you're chasing, chances are he'll never win it again, statistically speaking. That's not what Jesus is promising here. That's an illusory. It's an illusion. Euphoria. He's promising enduring joy. No one, he says, will take your joy from you. There's nothing else or no one else can promise that. No one else, and you know that by experience. Thieves or death will take away your possessions. Disease or death will take away your family. Will take away your lives, and your health. Retirement or death will take away your careers. It's foolish to look anywhere else for joy. Matt Carter writes, and this is so well said, I, I just felt like I needed to give you this quote. Placing our joy in things like relationships, work, events, Security and health, don't we tend to do that? Is like putting your life savings in a piggy bank, leaving it in a high crime district at night with a hammer, and adding a note asking people to leave it alone because it's really valuable. You're a fool if you think it will be safe. But if our joy is in Jesus, we trade the piggy bank for Fort Knox 
And the devil gets a spoon rather than a hammer. Amen. So the, the disciples and every believer here is promised fullness of enduring joy through transformed sorrow. The final point, we'll make this quickly. Fullness of enduring joy through transformed supplication. Our prayers are going to be transformed because of Jesus going away, in other words. Verse 23. In that day, that is after Jesus had been raised and ascended, and the paraclete, the, the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit is sent, in that day, he says, you will ask nothing of me. They're not going to be coming directly to Jesus, in other words. For three years, if they had a question or if they needed counsel or wisdom or needed uh, some kind of uh, peace, they came face to face with Jesus. He says, but in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. In other words, Jesus going away is going to transform the way we pray. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. You just asked me directly, is what he said. Ask, and he will receive, that your joy may be full. He's connecting prayer to the Father in the name of Jesus with joy, fullness of joy. He's assuming you cannot have this fullness of joy apart from communion with the Father in the name of the Son. But he says, ask and you will receive whatever you ask of the Father. Now, again, we had to deal with this in John 14, verse 14. So I won't spend too much time here. But is he giving us a blank check? Is this a promise of health, wealth, and prosperity? Let me just submit to you, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. No, this is not a formula for him to, in, to indulge my hedonistic Western approach to life. If that were the case, he certainly didn't answer Paul's prayers when Paul prayed three times for God to remove his thorn in the flesh and three times God responded, my grace will be sufficient for you. You can keep that thorn in the flesh, and it's for my purposes. So what does this mean to ask in my name? Well, it means if you're going to come to God, you're going to come on Jesus' merits alone. That's what it means. To come in the name of Jesus is to say, Father, I have no access to you apart from the righteousness of Christ which covers me and the blood of Christ, which cleanses me. I, I don't deserve to come into your presence. You are holy and righteous. But I come through the merits of Christ, in the name of Christ. But remember as well the context. In John chapter 15, just a few verses ago, in verse 16, he said, Go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide. So that's the Great Commission, right? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That gives us the context of what he's saying here. He's assuming that the person who prays in Jesus' name is on the same mission with Jesus. 
This isn't the American Christian who seeks to indulge his lust on a daily basis without any concept of the kingdom of God, without any zeal for the, the glory of God. But don't lose sight of the fact here that he is saying that you've got to be on the same page with me in order for this prayer to be answered. Now, think about this. Imagine taking a piece of paper and, and drawing a column, two columns. And, and on one side of the column, you write the, the words, me slash mine. Those are the prayers you pray for yourself and for those who you uh, love. Me and mine. It's good to pray those things. We're to cast all our cares upon the Lord. So it's a biblical thing to pray for these things. But on the other column, you write mission. So on one side of the column, you got me and mine. And on the other side of the column, mission. And after 30 days, which side of the column is going to be most full for you? Let me ask it this way. After 30 days, if, if God answered every question, that you are answered every prayer request that you gave him over the course of those 30 days, would it impact your life personally more or the kingdom of God? Okay, that's the question. Because the assumption here to pray in Jesus' name is that you're coming not only through Jesus and his merits, but with Jesus' mission in mind. Okay, that's what he's promising here. And remember, don't lose the fact we're going to come back to this next week. You're able to come to the Father in and through the Son. That's remarkable. The Father, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the sovereign, the omnipotent, the benevolent God of the universe. Jesus is promising, if you come to him in my name, you will have fullness of joy. Fullness of enduring joy through transformed supplication. Joy, let me close here, is a confidence in three things. First and foremost, it's the confidence that God loves me and has everything in control. Romans 8, 28. He's working out all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Think about a recipe. Uh, some of your favorite recipes, if you read were to eat the individual ingredients, they would be nasty. They would be foul. But you bring all of those individual ingredients together and then cook it, and you have a delicious meal. Everything that happens to you is not good in itself. God works all things together like a recipe for the good. He cooks it and brings about something beautiful and glorious for his people. Secondly, it's... To remember, I deserve much worse than what I'm getting. And because of the cross, I'm not going to get it. All right? And then third, the reality is if the Lord Jesus Christ would give his life for me and the Father would give his only begotten son for me, that communicates he's completely invested in me. He is invested in me for his good or his glory and my good. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in him freely give us all things? That's what Jesus is promising. Just hours from the cross,
fullness of enduring joy for everyone who will follow him. It comes through transformed sorrow and transformed supplication. As Josh and the musicians come forward, some of you right now are suffering worse than others. I want you to think about this as we sing for a little while, for a little while. Joy comes in the morning. And so what I want you to think about as we sing, I want you to grab hold of the reality that this is light and momentary affliction, but God is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4. Be encouraged by that. But also realize some of you have never bent the knee. You know those three baptisms this morning? What they symbolize, you've never experienced. You have never experienced what those baptisms symbolize. And you need to come to Christ today. He is the source of joy. He is the source of salvation. But you've got to do it on His terms. You have to come in Jesus' name on His terms. All you have to do is confess, I'm a sinner. I deserve your judgment. Jesus took the judgment for me and He was raised from the grave, reversing the curse on my sin. Why don't you come to Him as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.